0: John Henry, told his captain. captain, boss man, do you, you ever pray? Well, if I miss this it, still, let it hum get away. Mara, Mara be your barren
1: day. Lord, Lord, tomorrow be your barren day.
2: John this is En Mass, bringing together stories of struggle and hope from the working class. I'm your host, Liz Medina. You are listening to Episode 7, titled, Is This My Life? Featuring the story of Gampo Wickenheiser, a granite carver and artist. In the previous episode, we heard the story of Jack, a former head derrick man, who guided 20 ton blocks of granite out of the quarries. He also faced a painful period of unemployment during the Great Depression, along with 9 million others. In this episode, we will travel forward in time to hear the story of Gampa Wickenheiser. He is as skilled as Barry's famed granite carvers who came almost a century before him. Donegal, the granite carver whose story we heard in episode three, thought there wouldn't be any more stone artists in the future. Many of his fellow carvers in the 30s thought the same. He believed their fate to be the same as the dust that was slowly killing them. Many of the stone artists in the past did die, and there aren't many left today. Yet, a few still exist. But before we go that far, let's rewind and hear about some of the events that got us here. It's 1934, and we are in the office of Mayor Duncan. Roldus Richmond for the Federal Writers Project records that the office is dingy, overheated, with law books stacked ceiling high along the walls. The afternoon light is a dim blur through the two windows, and the noises of Main Street rise vague and discordant. Mayor Duncan is young-looking, with a pleasant face and a grave, assured manner. His sandy hair is in slight disorder, but then he speaks in a voice possessed of a calm
0: confidence. You want to know the effect of the Depression on Barry Granite? Well, I will tell you. The Depression saved Barry from the fate of Rutland Marble. The big-money interests were working in, moneyed folks like Proctor, spreading their tentacles toward Monopoly. But they just got started when the Depression hit them and knocked them out. He leaned forward in his chair and let out a slight sigh, and in a low, heavy voice, he added, Monopoly is again on the increase through the absorbing of smaller companies. The trend is in that direction, without a doubt. Well, it happened all over the country. I suppose it's too much to hope it can't happen here. And then there's all the modern machinery. There probably aren't more than a dozen or so hand carvers left here, and nobody to replace them when they're gone. Modern machinery has done away with them. Then, he stood up and
2: thoughtfully turned the windows overlooking the main street of his town. We will leave him here to ponder on Barry's future for there is much to come. The future did get brighter in terms of the overall economy, at least for a little while. The future is always uncertain, but these days it seems even more so. We are facing a multitude of ongoing crises, from growing inequality to nonstop environmental degradation and global warming. In economic terms alone, the economy has been through several cycles of boom and bust between the end of World War II and the present, with each subsequent crash only being partially resolved. Mayor Duncan was witnessing the rise of the multinational corporation and automation, phenomena that have reached scales you couldn't ever have imagined. The destruction left in the wake of World War II was taken advantage of by investors in powerful countries like ours. The United States found a great export and investment opportunity in all of the war reconstruction efforts. The International Monetary Fund and World Bank were created at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, forming powerful sources of world credit. The United States dominated, and still dominates, both of these international monetary organizations. That conference happened less than 100 miles from Barrie, Vermont. Brenton Woods is a recreational area in the town of Carroll, New Hampshire. It's a quiet town of 763 people, surrounded by woods and mountains. Flush with credit, the United States can now continue to colonize the world. The United States began liberalizing trade policy so growing U.S. corporations could break into more markets— They did this by reducing or eliminating tariffs and other trade barriers. According to a National Bureau of Economic Research paper, the average duty was 51.2% in 1931. Today, the average duty is 2%. For a while, some of the prosperity was shared with workers. The New Deal created new social policies and programs that helped the working class achieve greater financial security, President Lyndon Johnson launched his Great Society agenda during this post-war period to build on the New Deal. Some of the program legacies that were part of Johnson's Great Society include Medicaid and Medicare, the War on Poverty, which created work-study and Job Corps programs, including the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps, and the reestablishment of food stamps. The Civil Rights Movement and Women's Movement brought further social and economic progress. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed segregation in public places and banned employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. While women who were immigrants, non-white, or working class have always had to participate in the workforce, the workforce participation rate for all women rose steadily after World War II, from 30% just after the war to a peak of 60% in 1999. And then, after an entire generation of expansion, which lifted the boomer generation to levels of prosperity never achieved before or since in this nation, the economy once again came crashing down. The expansion was founded on U.S. dominance in manufacturing, cheap oil, and unfettered exploitation of the earth. After that, There were the recessions of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the dot-com bust in the 2000s. And last, but not least, the Great Recession of 2008. Comparing the Depression to these subsequent crises marks a major change in U.S. capitalism. With the Depression, capitalism was rescued from itself. The government stepped in to stimulate demand, control prices, and regulate labor and capital. This intervention paved the way for the most prosperous period in our entire history. Starting with the crisis of the 1970s, the government reversed course and instead let capitalism get even worse. The public's wealth was ransacked and given to the very wealthy, like some kind of perverse Robin Hood in which Robin is a rich person stealing from the poor on the behalf of his rich friends. Welfare was reformed, meaning cut and credit was expanded. They rationalized this perversion of social policy by arguing it would stimulate investment and then trickle down to the masses. More than 10 years after the Great Recession, we are still living within the policy framework established in the 1970s. Some call it neoliberalism. To put it simply, neoliberalism means corporate welfare trumps social welfare. The role of the government is mainly to increase the profits of firms through redistributing wealth to the top, ensuring the free movement of capital, but not people, and removing regulations that protect consumers, workers, and the environment. This has meant that all economic recoveries since the 70s have been carried on the backs of a more highly exploited workforce and environment. The fact that the 2008 crisis was interpreted as mainly a financial crisis reflects workers' dependency on credit to make up for falling and stagnating wages. And now, despite the fact that we are facing a global climate crisis, business interests are pressuring for vast environmental deregulation, telling us we must choose between jobs and a healthy environment. Today, both hourly and weekly wages remain below 1972 levels when adjusted for inflation. Benefits, such as health care and retirement plans, have become substantially less generous, if they are available at all. Public assistance is needed by almost 30% of the workforce. My generation, the millennials, is on course to be the first generation that has it worse than our parents' generation. And it's not because of lattes and avocado toast. However, it's not just overall compensation that has changed. How we work has changed, too. Remember in the previous episode and in episode three when we discussed how pneumatic tools made carving work go faster but also produced more dust? Well, technology has developed exponentially since then, and in that process, some jobs have been entirely eliminated. I haven't been replaced yet, but I worry that I might be. It worried Donegal, too, from episode three. It's more than a perennial social anxiety. Technology is not only replacing physical tasks, but mental ones. Everything I do is mediated by digital tools. My podcast and the oral history project that inspired it. My shopping. My socializing. We are analog beings. Our potential is infinite. But most of our jobs are narrow and finite in scope they can be easily replaced. Bank tellers, legal secretaries, tax preparers, store clerks, warehouse and transportation workers are just some of the jobs that are at high risk of elimination due to automation. If you have a morbid curiosity about the likelihood of your job being automated, we have a link to Oxford's article posted on our website. In that article, you can look up your occupation, and find the probability of it being automated in the near future. Even highly skilled work is being automated these days. In the granite industry, intricate grave markers and memorials adorned with roses, landscape scenes, portraits, almost anything you want really, can be and are made entirely by machines and computers. Those with money can still find a few old school hand carvers in Barrie, or it turns out, those with a union card. To find them, I went down to the United Steelworkers Labor Hall in Barrie. I heard they represented some of the workers at Rock of Ages, the biggest granite manufacturer in Barrie today. I told the middle-aged man behind the desk that I was a sister, a member of UAW Local 2322 at Goddard College. He gave me the name of a carver he described as old school. This old school carver's name is Sylvain he works in a shed with another carver, a young woman named Heather. Despite me being a complete stranger to him, he invited me to their shed where they worked. Recording a detailed interview with my cheap recorder in their busy shed was challenging. But I did get a sense of what their work is really like. Outside where I had parked my car, the sun was shining and the birds were chirping. Entering Heather and Sylvain's shed was an entirely different sensory experience, except for the bird part. There was a bird resting in the rafters of the shed. Every time it took flight, the flap of its wings sent up wave after wave of dust in the air. It didn't chirp. Instead, I heard a high-pitched whine that I would later discover was one of Sylvain's pneumatic drills. When he stopped working and we got talking, the sound was replaced by a low humming noise. I looked around for the source and noticed large metal ducts running across the ceiling. They were attached to a massive ventilation system. The vents ran constantly because Sylvain and Heather made dust constantly. The dust is as fine as flour, almost the same color, too, save for a tinge of gray, and it coats every surface in the shed. No man or machine can defeat it. But Sylvain and Heather didn't mind. They told me. If we are making dust, we are making money. This is what a stone carver's shed in Barrie, Vermont is like today, or at least when I visited one back in 2017. It felt like I was stepping into the past. Their tools were still powered by compressed air and were guided carefully across the stone with their own hands. And there was the dust. There was so much dust. Seeing Sylvain and Heather's shed was an incredible gift. Inside their shed was a world that was industrial, but also magical and surreal. Our recorded interview may have been overpowered by the sounds of their world, but they left me with yet another gift. They gave me the name of another stone carver. The name was Gampo Wickenheiser. Gampo's oral history was recorded by me, your host, in 2017. His story will be performed by George Brin.
1: It's physical work. It's dirty work. It's sort of unforgiving in a lot of ways. You have the dust problem. Granite has silica in it. Back in the day here in Barrie, you were lucky if you lived past 30, 40 years old. If you started from high school and, you know. There's the other safety precautions. You're dealing with tools that are steel and stone. There's rock and cranes that are huge. I've broken things at work. I've gotten cut and stitches and everything else just from the physicality of it. With the industry itself, the overall stone industry, it's just slowly fallen off. They're selling the sheds. The sheds are now broken into condos for, say, carpenters, people doing various trades, roofers keeping their stuff there, things like that. And that used to be exclusively just stone production. It's now broken up into 15 different businesses. And then there's been a consolidation of the standing business owners selling out to the multinational corporations. And also there's a lack of young people coming into the industry, big time. Just the Sandblast guys have known. Half of them have retired since I've been there. There's many job opportunities for Sandblast guys in the last couple of years. I've seen come up just because the work's still there, but nobody's there to do the work. Nobody seems interested in it. I don't know if maybe it's a cultural thing. People don't want to work that hard. Because it's kind of, it's old-fashioned. It's not in front of a computer designing stuff. You're not sitting in a chair all day. You're not clean. You're dirty. You're working. And maybe it's just this town, truthfully. I don't know. I can't say. People don't know that there's opportunities, and Vermont is a rural place. I've heard that the population of this state has declined. That could play a part. The younger generations aren't sticking around. So, I mean, overall, it's been sort of a decline. I've seen efforts, attempts at automation. Even some of my colleagues I work with, we've explored 3D printing. We've talked to different places that have milling machines for stone. I mean, it's something for maybe softer materials, like marble. But granite's pretty... It has a way of eating tools up, so it's not really worth it in that sense. The automation part of it applies much more in casting. I've done more of that. Computers and 3D printing is pretty cool. It's all done on the computer first. They just print it in their printer to whatever scale. Then they make a mold of that for the bronze. The whole splash process. But then some people are even looking into directly printing it into bronze itself. It's definitely something I'm paying attention to. But with the industry in decline and the loss of workers, it's almost reassuring my job security in that way, in the granite industry particularly. In the last decade, probably more than half the working carvers are retired, and there's nobody to fill that void. A lot of the artists I've met from other arts academies carve marble and limestone. That's about as far as it goes. Granite's a whole extra step of work. In high school, I was always artistic. Always had a bend towards art. My father was a carver. He did a lot of ornate sort of decorative stuff. mantel pieces or whatnot. I remember being little, seeing him carving and stuff. Spent a lot of time with clay since I was little. I would stay up as a teenager all night, making action guys out of Sculpey. I never took it seriously or even thought for a minute that's what I was going to do. It took like an incubation period through my mid-twenties. I was a carpenter for about nine or ten years. I was doing that full-time pretty much from the end of high school up until my mid-twenties, mid to late-twenties. When I think about it, you're just being young and reckless. Then towards the end, you start thinking about, this my life? I'm just going to be a carpenter? You work with guys that are in their 60s like, that's it? That's what I'm looking forward to? You start thinking, maybe I should go to school. What else were my options? What else to do before, you, you know? I stumbled onto sculpture, and that's what I've been doing for the last 16 years now. I mean, I still love building things. The sculpture had that same application of, you work with your tools, you work with your hands. It's still a dirty environment. You're still dusty, messy. Sculpture, you're still making things. You're still building stuff or making things, but it just had a much longer refinement to it. The time spent was much more enjoyable making sculptures than building houses or working on houses. I wasn't just putting together a kitchen with some cabinets and doors or a bathroom and tiles or a new roof, sculpture kicked the door wide open for the possibilities. It opens the door to the past. You go to Hope Cemetery here in Barrie, which has an awesome collection of carvings. You go to museums, you read books. Then for topics of particular dated pieces, you look at the garb they were wearing at the time. You find yourself wondering how to fold great kilts. Reading biographies about World War Two. I mean, all this stuff, the whole thing. Typically, I probably wouldn't have much interest in a lot of this stuff, but through a particular project, you start thinking about it. How does that work? How does this work? What does that look like? Most carving work is always different. It's always something new. You just keep learning. There's not an end to the education. I've always been self-employed in that way. As an independent contractor, I guess I would say. I like to have the freedom of being self-employed. If it's nice out and I want to go do something outside, go swimming or go to the lake or hike a mountain or whatever, I might do that. Or if I want to go see friends at other states for a week, spontaneously, I might do that. There are times where I have to work more than not. It's always like, you know, I mean... That's like an age-old, the modern man's working time versus family time. That's been going on for forever. What comes first? I definitely don't put my children second to my job. I always make sure that I'm spending time with them. They come to the studio, they have a little section, I set them up and they can kind of make stuff, and dad's doing this and we're making that, that kind of thing. At some point, it's a process of them leaving. First they're in your arms, they can't walk, then they're holding your hand or on your shoulders, then they won't hold your hand, then you can't hug them. It's a whole process. Get it while the getting's good, as they say. One of the perks of working for myself is that I make the free time. I won't work more than I can, you know? And I make them a priority. These shed guys are super hard workers. It's almost part of it. I think a certain contentment, you know. There's not like aspirations for higher education or more stuff out of life, you know. They can be happy living in a double-wide, driving the same truck, you know, just getting by, you know. I think as a carver, particularly working in stone, the most meaningful part of it is that, I'd say the longevity, the permanence of it, stone is very much reflective. It's like a mirror. Every shape, or form, or tool track, anything is reflective of your efforts and intentions. But the bigger part is being an artist. When you make art for the world in the bigger sense, speaking broadly, art has a way of stopping people from whatever they're doing for a minute, and giving them a sense of appreciation. Not just sculpture, painting, we're talking music, everything. People even go to see movies to step out of their life for a second. You're sort of providing a moment of sanity or peace or whatever you want to call it. And that's personally one of the most rewarding things. There is always a tension between time for art and time for commissions. All the time. Just in this last year alone, I've backed out of two different shows because I had nothing to bring. That is actually the tricky balance of it. If you're always working on commissions, you're making something for somebody else. You don't get the chance to reflect personally on your view of the world or what you're trying to communicate as an artist. I've had a hard time with that personally. The commission always wins out because of the fact that it's a paying job. That economically makes more sense. I'm very satisfied. I mean, maybe if I wasn't so confined to the customer-client dynamics, if I didn't have to satisfy others in that way, then I think I'd spend more time climbing. I have all these emotions of, like, when you're climbing. The stone... You have to bend your body to the stone, what it is, what it's doing, the form, the line you're following, the whole shape, the features of the cliff itself. When you're carving, it's the complete opposite. You're taking this rough rock and you're completely bending it to what your intentions are. It's the complete opposite. If I didn't have to worry about money, I'd definitely be living out of a van or a tent much more of the year. And if my needs were sort of more balanced, maybe I'd be more generous with the commission work. And that would be kind of cool, actually, because right now in capitalist society, you kind of go after lots of money. Like, is it big enough? You have a very targeted capitalistic mindset, and that's just how it operates here in America. I'd be much more willing to work with different people. For example, like a lot of times, I have conversations with people about what they want in a sculpture. There's always the desire from people wanting a piece of art, but then the reality of actually providing for them with what they want versus how much they can afford stops things a lot of times. It's a costly endeavor. It's like one of the things. I think when people's needs are met, it would be more sort of communal, I guess, I don't know if communal is the right word. It would be where people would just have a little more care for each other instead of competition.
2: George Bryn performing Gompo's story. After performing Gompo's story, George and I had a chance to talk in the studio. George Bryn is an artist and a businessman too. He makes beautiful custom furniture. As a self-employed craftsman and artist, George had a lot to say about Gompo's story.
1: Working for myself, Um, I can relate to a lot of his stories and what he appreciated about working for himself, uh, namely just the control you have of your schedule and your life and your play. But I also related to him because he had worked with a lot of people in the construction and carpentry world, um, which I've also worked in, and had some pretty accurate descriptions of, of people you find yourself working with. But yeah, I think what I certainly took away from reading his story was his appreciation of his time and as an artist how important it is that what you're doing and practicing is precious and uh, has intention is really really important and I think he seems to have kind of found that that place where you teeter between struggle and happiness and uh, I really relate to that for sure however he does bring up that really valid point that being an artist and living in that creative space you you're constantly having to find that balance between being creative and also being a good business person or making a good business choice and they they fight each other a lot so my reality is that i deal with the wealthy class my clients are part of that that class and that's not what i want to be doing with my craft necessarily it's just the reality that wealthy people can afford custom furniture and custom design but I've always struggled with that uh, so that's always been really hard for me just accepting that you know I'm making my money from wealthy people I guess it's better than making your money from poor people really <laughs> if you think about it but there's a saying um, that the cobblers children run barefoot and that's true. Like, I don't have a lot of my own furniture, because if I make it, I usually sell it. I have a few prototypes or things that didn't sell at a show, and I was like, ah, I'll just keep it. But most, yeah, mostly I don't have any of my own furniture. I kind of wish I had some of it. Coming out of school, when I graduated, we barely had CAD. And RISD was very hands-on. And it was, they prided themselves in in really training each discipline and, you know, being very hands-on and being fully and very aware of all of your tools. And uh, and it's not like that anymore. You know, I in fact, when I, I have a, one of the first things I discuss in the class I was teaching, I don't teach it anymore, it was a materials class and we, we would discuss three-dimensional, I'd ask for three-dimensional models and students would come in and, could open up their computer and show me a, a 3D rendering of something and say, oh, there's my 3D model. And I'm like, that is not 3D. <laughs> and it, that to them is 3D, a floating image in, in digital space is three dimensions. And we're just losing the, the, uh, the tactile interaction using our senses. And I see that everywhere. And I see people losing skills left and right because they're, they're focused on just one area. And also, again, in the story, he mentions automation, on uh, CNC milling and uh, stereolithography and three D printing. You know, they're another tool that you use uh, in industry, but without question, it strips the need for an artistic and creative hands on person, because you don't. You used to have to go search for that person, somebody who was really good at carving and shaping and had a good three dimensional sense. And in the industry, they have no place anymore, because. At A computer can do that now. It's pretty devastating. You know, in certain areas, particularly, you know, stone carving, that is a a very honored artistic craft that takes years to to learn and perfect. And just overnight, it's almost been replaced by something that has, you know, no soul or character. Um, And that's just business. You know, artists are are suffering for it for sure. I've had projects working with architects where they want a form that for me would take days to shape and to carve, whereas if I have a file and it's done, you know, it's rendered, it'll be done in a matter of an hour. And as far as how I approach something, I tend to not use any automation because if somebody's coming to me for a commission, they want all of my creativeness. They want my hand skills. Hopefully that's what and my creativity and my vision and how I see that vision. So there's always a balance of not not letting it take over a project, but just using it like another tool. And I I really this one last thing, it's we're at a real critical juncture now where we were at the beginning of the twentieth century the very beginning of the 20th century with the advent of the machine and um, mass production and the Industrial Revolution. And there was a big component of designers um, and creative people who really fought it. The arts and crafts movement really pushed it away. And then there were other artists uh, and designers like Frank Lloyd Wright and Charles and Ray Eames, very famous designers, who viewed technology simply as just another tool, just like a table saw is or a Paintbrush or a pen—it's just how you use it, and to not abuse it. And and I and I believe that I I fight technology a lot. I'm not a very technical person, and I appreciate the skills I've learned with my hands and that connection I have. But there are tools that can be utilized, good accordance, like in in an appropriate uh, application. And what tends to happen is that we overapply these technologies, and then we start to lose the the human element, the 4D. I mean, that's the fourth dimension of design is the human aspect. And it, as long as we always maintain that and keep a little bit of human humanity in what we're doing, I, I think we could be safe. But technology today is really usurping the human spirit and just moving forward without us. And that that's scary because it's soulless and um, it's just leaving everybody in its wake. It's awful. I've always taken pride in it. I definitely know what he's talking about. My hands are, right now they're looking pretty good because, yeah, I've been working on, I've been drawing and stuff, but there are times where my hands are just, they're cut up, they're calloused, they've got stain on them, they've got band-aids, their tips are wrapped just from working so much. And you just kind of get used to that, and then you'll have to dress up and go to a, a wedding or a funeral or something, or big dinner, and you show up and your hands are all cut up and calloused, and, but you're wearing a suit. <laughs> I, I, I love that dichotomy. I love that my hands are kind of a badge of what I do. Um, my stepfather, who who's passed away, he was a furniture maker also and built log houses. and He was an extraordinary worker, and his hands were absolutely mangled. They just... Looked like they'd been through a wood chipper. They were—he was missing nails. One of them, you know, had broken a few of them, and they weren't pretty, <laughs> but they were so who he was. You could see his hands going, "Oh, those are Carl's hands." Like everything he did was etched in his hands. It was pretty incredible. So, yeah, I like that, and I imagine he wore it with pride too, because even if someone were to look at you and go, "Oh, you're a laborer," looking it's like, "Yeah, and I know how to do that." Like, if you only knew what these hands could do.
2: My grandfather made wooden furniture and decorations, mostly for family members. He also grew vegetables. And when I was born, he planted a birch sapling in our yard. My grandmother made us clothes and delicious soups. Their hams, though shaky and worn, made our small corner of the world more beautiful. Their work lives on in my mother whenever she is at her sewing table, and also in me whenever I'm writing, painting, or cooking. I think of all they did and all they have yet to do. What do you think about class? Do you work with your hands? With your head? Have you seen automation at your workplace? Did you relate to Gampo's story? We'd like to hear from you. You can post your stories on our Facebook page, send us a tweet at Podcasts, or email us at OnMassPodcast at gmail.com. That's E N M A S S E podcast. For the next episode, we will hear the story of a retired academic advisor named Paul who found working at a liberal arts college to be more precarious than Gampo's experience in the granite industry. Paul worked hard, earned multiple degrees, and is widely intelligent. And yet, the Great Recession marked a paradigm shift into a world that no longer values his talent for creative and independent thinking. We are now in a world where higher education equals job training, and where the majority of jobs available Our entry level service jobs. Thank you for listening. We have additional reading materials, archived footage, and show notes on our website. While there, you can give us feedback or suggestions for the next season. This is an independently produced show. I receive support from you, my listeners. If you like this show, go to slash donate to show your support. Special thanks to our performer. George Brin and our storyteller Gompo Wickenheiser for this episode. The song "John Henry" at the beginning of our show is from the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Center, Library of Congress. Used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. I'm Liz Medina. This is On Mass, bringing you stories of struggle and hope from the working class. <laughs>
0: John Henry told his captain, captain Going on down this track, captain. captain, Captain, oh Lord, I may not I'll never come back. Oh no, I may not I'll never.